Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Psalm 77. Some time ago, when I was much younger in the ministry, I had the opportunity, somebody, I believe it was a pastor, who gave me a book written by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled Spiritual Depression. And I will never forget the impact that book had on me as I learned to understand the difference between an emotional depression and a spiritual depression. Now, I believe there are times in many people's lives where they go into a physical depression. It may be the result of chemical imbalances or something like that that eventually slows down the system or the production of the necessary chemicals to function normally, simply called an organic depression. There are others who have become emotionally depressed where life circumstances and uh, the difficulties of living in a fallen world have become much for them to bear. In some cases, it seems too much to bear. But there is something far greater, far more painful, far more difficult than either a physical or an emotional depression. And that is when the soul is depressed, when deep down that which was created in the image and likeness of God borders on becoming functionless, where spiritually, for all intents and purposes, we become practical agnostics. God doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to be there, no matter how much we cry out, no matter how much we try to employ what we have been taught, we still end up on our faces, stretched out before a God who doesn't seem to care, who doesn't seem willing to extend his mercy, a God who doesn't seem to answer prayer, a God who appears to us to be deaf. I will assure you of this, in one way, shape, or form, all of you will at one time experience some form of spiritual soul depression. It is a very difficult experience, one in which, while in a lighted room, you may see nothing but darkness. People's lips move, but you can't hear what they're saying. Or at least what you do hear makes no sense. Worship, when you are in this form of depression, will seem to travel no further than your lips. It seems meaningless. The word will appear very dry. The great stories of the Bible will not make much difference. You have, or you are, or you will at some time, if you remain a believer for any length of time, experience this form 
of depression, some to a greater degree than others. The psalmist who wrote this 77th Psalm is unknown to us. We don't know who he was. In fact, when we read the psalm, it seems to end abruptly. It's almost as though there's more to be said. He cuts off his discussion almost in midstream. This, of course, has caused some commentators to think that the psalm was unfinished and that other portions of other psalms were meant to fill in the blanks. I don't believe that's the case. I believe the psalm ends abruptly for a very simple reason. It's not over. All of us who have at one time or another loved and served God have experienced or will experience the same kinds of things that the psalmist experienced. You are the verses that complete this psalm. Regardless of who wrote it and why they wrote it and the circumstances surrounding their writing of this psalm, one thing is clear. When Israel worshipped God, this psalm in the Old Testament was a prominent psalm. When the body came together in the temple to worship, they would often sing this psalm. It became a national hymn, if you will, in times of great despair, in times of war and uncertainty, where the world around them seemed to be coming apart. Israel would often sing this psalm, not only corporately, but in personal individual lives, this psalm became a heartbeat, if you will, an agony of the soul. I want to assure you of something. I have been where this psalmist was. I readily admit there are times even today when I struggle with the very same spiritual depression as this psalmist does. It's almost breathtaking when you hear the cry of his soul. It's almost as though he cannot put into words what he's trying to say. Words do not cut it. In fact, he says that in the psalm. When I tried to speak, I couldn't. There is a moaning and a groaning of soul that simply cannot be articulated with words that either I or the people around me can understand. All of us will at one time experience to one degree or another, some to greater degrees, a depression of the soul. It doesn't do much good when you are observing people like this to walk up to them and say, snap out of it. It doesn't do much good to walk up to them and say, believe God. Trust the promises of God. All you have to do is trust Jesus. The soul wants to do that, but it is in a darkness that cannot seem to find any light. It's almost as though you were to witness a car accident and a lady or a man is thrown from the car and is laying there on the ground bleeding. Lacerations all over the face and the arms clearly bleeding to death and you walk up to them and say, stop bleeding. Wouldn't that be foolish? Everything inside of them wants to stop bleeding. 
But it isn't until radical surgery happens when the surgeon applies the balm of his hand and the healing begins. And even then, the healing is painful. People will tell you that some of the greatest pain they experience is not the accident itself, but the after effects when the surgeon has done his work. And that is true of the surgeon we serve. When God at times has to finish with us and perform radical surgery, sometimes it is even more painful than the spiritual depression, but all of it is to his glory. When the psalmist comes to verse 10, he opens verse 10 with this word, then I thought, then I thought. He has now laid out for us the obvious pain of soul that brought him to the point of a practical atheism where he says to God, I don't know whether your promises can be trusted. I don't know whether you're even hearing my prayer. I even stretch out in worship and the worship seems meaningless. Your word is like dry toast. The people around me notice it and they are affected. The pain is too much to bear. Here is a man in the throes of intense spiritual depression. By the way, rarely does this kind of depression happen just like that. Oftentimes, most times, if not all the time, it's the product of a series of divine invasions where God scorches us and changes the direction of our lives, sometimes because we have made bad decisions, but oftentimes, even in spite of good decisions, we are scorched. The iron of God's spirit is on our backs and visible and painful, and at times God moves us here and moves us there and drives us here and drives us there, and cumulatively we find ourselves in the throes of a spiritual depression. And just as at times it takes years to get there, oftentimes it will take years to get out. It's a tough place to be. It's a struggle of the soul. Something for some reason God chose not to hide from us in giving us this 77th Psalm. It is when you are in the throes of that kind of pain, verse 10 says, then I thought. Now you're waiting. We've talked about the cause, but now what's the cure? Hopefully you're not sitting there or listening to this or watching this on TV and thinking to yourself, okay, he's now going to give me five easy steps to get out. Recipe Christianity. That's what we like. Go to any local bookstore, Christian bookstore anywhere, and look at what's on the shelves. How to do this and how to do that in five easy steps. Somehow or another, we've missed the point that becoming a Christian requires the work of God in his son, Jesus Christ. But living the Christian life is anything but simple. It is anything but easy. But he says, then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. 
When he speaks of the right hand, he's obviously referring to the right hand of blessing. That's what the right term right hand means. It's the blessings of God. He says, I am going to now think through the ways in which God has blessed me. Now listen closely. The Bible teaches us that God's blessings are renewed every morning. That means if you woke up today and you have not yet focused on the blessings of God, then either God lied and there were no new blessings to be found or you're just not looking. The blessings of God are renewed every day. A new word, a new blessing, a new hand, a new touch from the Spirit of God. But when you're in the throes of depression spiritually, sometimes those blessings are hard to see. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God, small g, is as great as our God, capital G? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. You see here, the psalmist reveals the process by which he saw the value of the deeds of God. There are two steps to it. He says, first, I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the wonders of God. Now notice in verse 11, the word remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I believe other versions translate that word muse, which doesn't simply mean to think about something, but to think deeply about something, to go beyond the superficial ways in which we think, where a thought goes in and a thought goes out. At some point along the way in spiritual depression, you need to plug one side of the hole so that the blessing goes in and stays there so that it can move around and roll around and you can taste it and feel it and experience it so that you muse, you remember the deeds of God. Now, I want you to note something else. Unless you know Hebrew or Aramaic or any of those languages in which the Old Testament was written, you're going to go right past this real quick. You're going to miss a very important transition in verse 11. Up until verse 11, the name that he uses for God is the word Elohim. Elohim, which simply means El, God of many gods. The God who is above other gods. When you add the word Him to El, it becomes a plural. The God of gods. It's a term of estrangement. It's a foreign God. It's a God who is the creator of the universe but a God who has not made himself known. Not a personal God, but a holy other God, a transcendent God, a God who cannot be touched, a God who is not at all imminent. In fact, for you to understand the depth of the word Elohim, I want to take you back to the cross of Jesus Christ. For it was on that cross 
in the midst and throes of the greatest spiritual darkness anyone has ever experienced, a complete alienation from God where God the Father literally cut himself off from God the Son, turned his back on his only begotten Son. Even the heavens screamed out, we can't watch this. And there was darkness. And in the middle of that darkness, amidst the rumblings coming from the crowd, maybe hearing the dice being tossed by the soldiers who gambled at the foot of his cross, you hear him suddenly scream out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which simply means, my God, Elohim, strange God, foreign God, God who is transcendent and cannot be known. That's the word Christ used. Now, up until verse 11, that's the word the psalmist uses. But now when we come to verse 11, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Now, let me see if I can explain that word to you, the word Lord. When Jesus was confronted by his enemies, you read about this whole uh, debate in John 8, 9, and 10. Read John 8, 9, and 10. It's the struggle between Christ and the religious leaders of his day. The discussion centered around the history of Israel, the root structure, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And of course, the Jews readily trace their history back to Abraham. They saw Abraham as the father of the nation. He was the first to whom God extended the promises of the covenant. In Genesis 12, we have one of the greatest chapters in scripture where God calls Avraham, where God calls Abraham to be the father of many. Avram means father of one. Avraham means father of many. And he, God changes his name from Avram to Avraham, the father of many. But it was not Abraham who sought God. For you see, he was a moon worshiper. He was a pagan. He was a heathen. And God called him. God invaded his life. God established his covenant with Abraham and made him the father of a nation. The rest of the Old Testament is a story of that nation. It's the story of the struggle of the seed of the woman that is found. It's still struggling today. That's what we have in terms of the wars today. The war between the God of the West, so to speak, and I'm using these terms very loosely, and the God of the Islamic people, they're still struggling. There's still a struggle as to who that God is. All of them seem to want to trace their origins back to Abraham. Well, the Jews were no exception. So they're talking to Jesus, and he makes this incredible statement when they begin to question him as to who he is. Who are you? And in the context of speaking of Abraham, Jesus makes this incredible statement. Now watch this. Listen closely. He says, before, because they asked him, are you... Are you greater than our father Abraham? How can you, who are no more than 50 years old, uh, be greater than our father Abraham who lived thousands of years ago? How could you be greater than Abraham? And Jesus said, listen, before Abraham was, 
Yahweh. I am. The name Yahweh was a name Israel was forbidden to speak. That's the name that God used when he confronted Moses on the top of Sinai through the burning bush when Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am has sent you. Who are you? I am that I am. God defined himself as Yahweh. The Bible says they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. Because you see, when it comes right down to it, the Jews got only one thing right when they gave the charges to Pilate against him. He makes himself to be God. They got that right. And the penalty for making yourself to be God was stoning. They picked up stones to stone him. He is saying to us through this discourse, I, Jesus, am that I am. I am Yahweh. I not only have the right to speak the name, I am the name. You following me? When we come to verse 11, that is the name that this man in horrible suffering now uses. He says, I will remember, I will muse upon what Yahweh did. No longer Eloi, Eloi, no longer the God of estrangement, but the God of the covenant, the God of the promise, the God who not is simply holy other, but the God who being holy other is imminent and intimate with his people. A God who not only can be known, but is known through the promises he made in the covenant. It is not enough to recall what God does. One must also think through the significance of what God has done. That's the important thing. He says, I will meditate on them. I will think about them. I will concentrate on these until I see the meaning of these events. You see, that's the important thing. And that's also the trouble with many of us as Christians. We faint at the meditation stage. We're pretty good knowing we have to get there. But when we get there, we don't know what to do with it. The psalmist now is saying, I'm not only going to meditate on what God has done, I'm going to meditate on it in a way I never have before. Now listen to me. We've all been here. I'm, I'm speaking to the choir right now. I'm speaking to all of you who have struggled with the same things I do. If your walk with the Lord is estranged, you decide, I need to get alone with God. And you're right. You need to get alone in your closet with God. You need to spend some time alone with the Lord. So you decide, all right, I'm going to go over here. Telephone's off the hook. No children, they're in bed. Maybe late at night when no one's going to come knocking at the door. You ask your family not to disturb you. And you go into your prayer closet because you want to know your God in an intimate way because something's wrong in your walk. And you find yourself in there and you begin to muse upon the things of God. 
You begin to speak of his greatness. You begin to praise him for who he is. And as the psalmist, you lay yourself out before God and you say, God, I need answers. I need to hear your voice. Five minutes later, your brain is cluttered. It's cluttered with the carpet's dirty. I need to vacuum it. Oh, I forgot to send that email. Oh, I didn't take the trash down. Tomorrow's trash day. Lord, I'll be right back. And off you go. Within five minutes, your mind is filled with everything but God. Stands the reason, doesn't it? Do you think the enemy is happy when you make that commitment to get alone with your God? He is going to fill your brain with everything from the war in Iraq to whether or not you should hug a tree. He is going to fill your mind with all the political turmoil, the financial turmoil, the fact that your aunt is a crazy woman, the fact that your relatives are sick in the head. He's going to fill your mind with all those things and suddenly you no longer are meditating and musing on him. Okay, how many have been there? Few of you. Rest of you are lying. <laughs> Suffice it to say this. The breakthrough rarely happens. It rarely happens. We don't want to take the time to think about what God has said or what he does and thus come through to a significant understanding of the meaning of God's actions to me personally. So turn off your television set. Think about what God has done for you and how it means something to you. I'm not just talking about being theologically accurate. Anybody can fill your mind with Bible data. I'm talking about what does that Bible data mean to you? And you must have that breakthrough. Look at verse 13. Your ways, O oh God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You see what's happening to the psalmist? The same thing that's going to happen to you when you break through. When you begin to muse on the greatness of God, here's what happens. The more, listen, the more you muse on the greatness of God, the more you understand two things, how holy he is and how sinful you are. You see, the closer you get to God, the more exposed you become. That's what confession is all about. And that is exactly what God desires of you. Not for his benefit, but for your benefit. The closer we draw to him, the more we understand how much clutter there is in there that needs to be cleaned out. Otherwise, we never see him for who he is. We see him through a cloud very darkly. That cloud is the clutter of my life. I've been there. I struggle with it today. Psalm uh, 77, verse 14. Uh, this is the conclusion to which he finally came. Then he gives us certain details of how he arrived at that conclusion. Verse 14. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. 
The conclusion that he ultimately comes to is the greatness and the holiness of God. And by the way, that is always the ground of our faith. Faith is always strong when one is aware of the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man. But the thing that led him to this was his understanding of the supernatural power and the redemptive love of God. These were the steps which brought him to his awareness of the greatness of God. You see, he meditated upon the works of God that led him to stand at last before God himself and to feel something of the awe of the spirit that comes to all who consider the moral perfections of God. God's holiness, his total absence of error, his purity and sinlessness. There is no wrong in his life there is no clutter in the divine brain. He is holy. He is perfect. He is complete in every detail. And this man must learn the incomparable greatness of that God. Now he is beginning to come fully to understand how this downward spiral can be stopped. You know what he was stopped with? He was stopped with this line of thinking. Where am I going? Where am I going with this? With this horrible depression, where am I going? I am just plunging headlong, catastrophically, into defeat and despair. And he saw that it was plunging him right into the uncertainty and the confusion because there was no authoritative word in his life. Put another way, what are your options? What are your options? Like Peter, when the crowds began to leave Jesus, he turned to his disciples and he said, will you also leave me? And what did Peter say? To whom shall we go? You have the word of life. So what are your options? Self-help? Positive thinking? Money? Somebody wrongly patting you on the back and inflating an ego that has no business being inflated? My, my, look how great I am. So-and-so patted me on the back. I sicken. I'm nauseated by this obsession America has with what Brad Pitt is doing. Who cares? And yet we're obsessed with it. It saddens me that many of the believers somehow or another have convinced themselves all I need to do is read a self-help book. 25 ways to come out of depression. And we read it. And we're as depressed, if not more, after we read it than we were before. Why? Because it is not self-help God desires of you. He does not want you to begin thinking how great you are. Your self-image is not what's important. That's the heathenism of the Eastern religions that have made their way into the West. Nowhere in scripture does God say, think positively about yourself. 
pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know that doctrine, sola bootstrapa? <laughs> How erroneous. Your identity, friend, can only be found in your relationship to Jesus Christ. That is where self-worth comes from when you see what he has done for you. To whom shall you turn? Now, he goes one step further. He doesn't mention all the miracles. He doesn't say, I'm going I'm to think about all the miracles of the old. He mentions one. I think it's critical as to the one he mentions. The starting point, if you will. You're going to muse on something? Muse on this. You know where he takes us? He takes, he didn't have any Sunday school pictures of this. There were no VCRs. There were no, he had no information, firsthand information. It was all handed down from generation to generation. He takes us back to Egypt, where the people of God for 400 years were in bondage. 400 years. The thoughts of God were out of there. They had actually been assimilated into the culture of the Egyptians. Their gods became Israel's gods. And God sends them a deliverer to release and to emancipate them from the bondage of Egypt. You know the story. How the plagues came one by one and finally Pharaoh relented and said, all right, go, go. Take your people with you. And 1.2 million people left Egypt with Moses at the helm. Now they come out to this point right here. On their right are mountains. On their left are more mountains. Straight ahead is the Red Sea. And behind them is Pharaoh's army. Because now he recanted of his permission and came with his Apache helicopters, with his tanks, with his artillery of his day, which were the chariots that very few countries had, and his armed soldiers who were like machete machines who could come and destroy hundreds of people before they are even touched. He sends that army to pursue those children who are now on the brink of destruction. They only had one direction to look, didn't they? What direction was that? Up. Up. They moaned and they groaned and they complained. You brought us out here just to be killed? God stops the chariots for a moment so Israel can cross over. He describes what happened there. What a description. The thunder, the lightning, the wind of God with not a footprint or a fingerprint of God in the, in the bottom of that Red Sea. And the children march over in dry land. The breath of God splits the waters and he holds back the armies until they're safe on the other side. And he releases the cloud. He releases the fire. And into the depths of the Red Sea, the, ocean, the sea had been now parted, come Pharaoh's armies, failing to see the hand of God at work. Miriam would lead the people in a wonderful song. As the waters came and covered up this Egyptian army, she would sing the song of redemption. 
redemption. The psalmist in this pit of despair says, I'm going to muse on the miracles of God and in particular, this one, my redemption. You want to muse? Let's go back to a cross. Let's take a little journey back to a cross. March over the hill with me and smell the stench of hundreds of people who had been executed on that little rock with a form of capital punishment unparalleled in human history in the evil of a man's mind. Crucifixions were so common and the people could smell the stench. They could see the flies. They could see the stain of the bloods littering the rocks and the crosses still drying with the crust of a man's skin. And they would come into town that day and hanging on that cross was the very God of history unknown to them. You want to come out of that depression? Take a walk up to that cross. Get a hold of his feet. Feel the warmth of his blood dripping from his brow. Let his eyes, six feet up, meet your eyes. See the crown of thorns. Look at the prince of the nails in his wrists and the spike driven through the foot you are now holding. Feel the blood come down on you. Hear him say, in the midst of all this agony, Father, forgive Chuck. He doesn't know what he's doing. Hear him turn, watch as his head struggles to turn to the same thief that just a few minutes ago riled and ridiculed and abused him, but saw something in Christ that caused him to say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hear him say, Hear the breath as he pulls himself up by the nails in order to get the breath into his lungs and then exhale these words. Today you will be with me in paradise. Hear him say that to you. Today I have done this for you. This is your redemption. Embrace the cross. Listen to his mother. Listen to her wails because the scripture and the prophets said to her, there will be a day when a sword pierces your heart. Listen to the cries of the women. Listen to the disciples out in the distance somewhere, wondering what is going on. Travel with them. Help them pull the nail out of his hand. You stand there. You catch his body as lifelessly it falls into your arms. You wipe the blood off of his brow. You hold him there. A few minutes later, you help to wrap him and you take him down into the side of the earth where there is this tomb and you place him in there. Travel with me as you wait on that Saturday when you don't know what's just happened. I thought you were the Messiah to come. You're locked up in a room fearing that you might be on the cross next because you were a follower. You watched him cleanse the lepers. You saw him touch the eyes of the blind. You saw him walk on water. You saw him call Lazarus out of the tomb. Who is this man that even the winds obey him, you would say, as he comes and settles the storm in the very boat you found yourself in about to drown? 
Now you're in Saturday. And you don't know what's happened. It doesn't end there, though, does it? Come back the next day. Travel with the ladies who somehow or another didn't know how they were going to move a two-ton rock up a 35-degree angle out of a slot. How were they going to get that rock away? They didn't even think about that. Somehow we'll figure it out. We're here to anoint the body. And you come to that tomb. And that rock has been exploded out of its rut. That rock has been raised by a power far greater than any of those soldiers who are laying there like dead men. You rush into the tomb and you find that the cloths are neatly tucked away. He didn't get stolen. There was order in this. He came through the cloths and he burst out of the tomb. The angels didn't come to roll away the stone to let him out. For you see, he was already gone. The angels came to roll away the stone to let you in. You just embraced him. You just held his feet. You smelled the stench of death. The blood of Christ, warm and rich, dripped out of his brow. You remember the slap of the spear going through the skin and you saw the blood mixed with water come pouring out. You were there. You were there. You were there. And then hear him. In the midst of your depression, come to you. And say to you. I. Am alive. Christ. The Lord. Is risen today. Christ the Lord has been raised from the dead. Death could hold him no more. O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? And he comes and he picks me up off that floor in the midst of that horrible depression and he walks me back to that point where I can stand and see the redemption he has given me, the great miracle, much greater than even the parting of the Red Sea, the redemption of my soul, where I have been washed in his blood. When you begin to muse on those things and then make a turn and look ahead. It's not done yet. This is only the beginning. Where you see out there in the eastern sky, the Son of Man will come through the clouds. The nail prints will still be in his hands. The hole will still be in his side so that we will never forget the rock from whence we were hewn and the hole from which we were digged. And he will bring us into eternal glory. To forgive us, not only our sins, but to make us just like him. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.